Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. For uh, that fun talk. Um... We're, uh, our goal is to do that every three to six months, so we're way behind, so I appreciate you guys bearing with us. If you're new, we, we do like talking about money, but not that often, so uh, we don't do it every week, that's for sure. But I will say, before we get into the teaching, um, that from a pastoral perspective, Nathan is correct. He is not paid for it. Uh, his job is not to teach everybody necessarily the theology of giving or why we give, uh, but he is definitely helpful in letting us know where we're at and where we're going. A lot of people didn't even know that we were a church plant. Uh, or that we were um, not self-sustaining, and so uh, it's encouraging to know where we need to go. And um, I will say, and I promise this, that uh, we are, uh, if you didn't know, we're going through Matthew, the book of Matthew, and uh, we, have, we have a little more to go. Uh, we'll be finishing up in Easter of 2023, and then uh, after that, we're actually going to do a series on just giving, stewardship, generosity, and what that means. So um, if you've been a part of us since the beginning, we have never really talked about money at all. We've never really talked about giving very much, generosity. We haven't taught on it. And so I want, I want to make this promise to you that I want us to be a church that's generous. And the only way that you can do that is to learn what it means and how to do it and how to be a good steward of what you've already had. So if you're with us until then, uh, just, you know, you can get excited or nervous. I don't know. You can plan a vacation then after Easter if you want. Um, but I have been the recipient of generosity far too many times, and it, it ruins you in a good way. So um, Nathan is asking, uh, he is asking you the exact same thing he's asking me to participate in as well. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 17. We uh, started a, uh, a, a trend in Jesus's actual physical hike, if you will, uh, last week, where he was, he's been going all around Galilee talking to Gentiles or non-Jews, uh, miracles and teachings and all this type of stuff. And now he's officially headed the most north, he will, and he is heading south into Jerusalem, where in, during Easter, Holy Week, uh, Good Friday, all that stuff, the, the showdown will occur, and uh, he'll, he won't come back out of Jerusalem. And so uh, as, we're, as we're heading that way, the, sh- the gears start to shift uh, in Matthew. If you look in the book of Matthew... Uh, and you've been following along with us, you know that we've broken it up into seven different parts, and there's really five main parts. You can just kind of get rid of the intro and the conclusion. Five main teachings that Matthew puts into his, his account for the audience that's listening. The audience that's listening are Jewish people, and they knew the Torah, the five books that they were to follow, the law, and so he gives them five books, if you will, five pieces, five components of Jesus' teaching as like the new Torah, if you will. And so we're in this, we're, we're in uh, the upside down kingdom, which is him just starting to reveal that this is what the Messiah has to do. And the Messiah has to die. He has to suffer at the hands of man for man. And most people don't understand it. Most people don't like it. And even Peter, James, and John, who got a glimpse of Jesus's glory last week in the transfiguration, are still trying to reconcile what that looks like and what that means. And so today is, is a unique passage. Um, it is... It is ironic that Matthew puts it here, and we say puts it here because chronologically, this story is in two other gospel accounts, and it doesn't necessarily fit with the, the chronology of the other stories. And so Matthew's doing something purposeful here, and what he's doing is really cool and really unique. Uh, one of the things that I think is funny that he's doing is 
the transfiguration was very similar to Moses going up on the Mount Sinai. If you remember that story, he goes up, he's in the presence of the Lord, he comes back down with a too heavy Ten Commandments, you know, like that's the photo we see, right? And then uh, his face is shining, right? Because he had been looking at God and the, fa- the presence of God was just like radiating his face, right? And he comes down and what does he see? He sees a golden calf. <laughs> all the people have been like, let's just like melt all of our gold together and if this God doesn't work out, we'll have another God. And Moses comes down and he just snaps the commandments over his knee and he has to go back up the mountain. It's like an awkward story. Uh, and Jesus is, is similarly like coming down the mountain. He's with his three closest disciples. They just saw his glory. And then he comes to this scene where his other disciples are just like struggle, struggle busing, like trying to do it on their own. Uh, and it, it just, I think it's a rude awakening and reminder of just that uh, you can have these moments where uh, you just feel like really in the presence of the Lord or just like you feel peace. And then the next moment your toddler starts screaming. And you're like, that is gone forever now. I feel that even sometimes, like, uh, I'll come early and I'll, like, I'll play on the piano and, like, just worship. And then I will immediately go, like, into a conversation with someone and just feel this, like, complete, like, just severance of peace and, and just, like, I don't know, comfort. And in the same way, Jesus and his disciples come down. And in, in Matthew, Matthew's story, it's not as much details as Mark and Luke. And I'm going to kind of pull all three together to give you the full picture here. But we remember there's a reason why they're doing that. Matthew has a very specific focus on this story. Um, but as we, as we center into it, and you look in your text, it just looks like he comes down the mountain and he bumps into these people. But what's ha- what had been happening, according to uh, Mark and Luke, is that when they come down the mountain, they come into a crowd of religious leaders and his disciples arguing with one another. So the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, who have been trying to put Jesus down, are with his nine other disciples, and they're arguing about... Uh, probably about this demon and if they can heal him and, and then this man and his child are here and then there's probably other people and it's just this conglomerate of chaos that's all just trying to like figure out right what's going on and is Jesus really real and why can't you heal this demon or is it really even a demon or you know then they're just bickering it's like this moment of peace coming down the mountain and then you're like and here we are back into the world and this boy uh, that we know, like, he has a demon in him. Uh, it's a lot similar, like, to epilepsy today in modern society. Now, are you wondering, did he have epilepsy? No, the symptoms in the three accounts are different than epilepsy. But just think of it like that, where you have these random moment fits of seizures and things like that. And, we, and the, the demon would do it on, pur- on purpose, even in, around fire and water and stuff, to, like, torture, try to drown him, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it even made him mute. A lot of demons m- kind of muzzle uh, your ability to speak. So this boy is struggling, and he can't even ask for help himself. And his, his dad takes him to these disciples, probably really bummed that Jesus isn't there. And he's like, okay, well, I guess the disciples will be fine. And then they can't cast out the demon. And this is where we're at in the story. This man says in verse 16, he says, I brought him to your disciples, but they were not able to heal him. Now, what's interesting about this this story, and I'm going to just, it's going to be ugly because I am going to take some of my own personal context of my own life when I read this story and how I feel about it, because I'm also human, so when I read the Bible, I'm not just like, this is great, everything's amazing, nothing is hard to reconcile in my own life. Like, no, there's, there's things that I read, and I'm like, gah, I don't like this passage, I don't want to teach on it. <laughs> if I just skipped it, maybe no one would know, right? Um, you're like, oh, that's weird, I message, yeah. So, I'm just being honest with you. In this moment, it's very confusing because the disciples can't cast out this demon, but there has been stories before this where they have. 
They have had a track record of being able to do this. Jesus says, go out. Here's my authority. Go out, cast out demons, heal people. He has, they've done this. There's a track record of success. And then there's this moment where they fail. And just, just objectively, like when I think about like people praying for things to happen, I have been a very strong recipient of that in my life. I don't know if you have, meaning you've prayed for something, God to do something, God to heal someone, God, right? And he just like didn't do it. Is what it feels like, right? He didn't listen or he didn't do it or it didn't happen the way that you wanted to. And for me, that was one of the, in my life, one of my biggest uh, probably like traumatic experiences is my dad dying through me, you know, me praying through him receiving healing. I was journaling and thinking about times when I specifically prayed and I can remember um, praying, you know, on my flight home as he wasn't doing well, that he would, do, that, he would that he would be better. I have a journal entry where I, I prayed that, Lord, like, give me some of his cancer, right? Like, I'm young. I can, I can fight it and heal. And, and, like, he's got a lot more life to go. I can remember praying when we were gathering around his bed in our house as he was towards the end that, like, Lord, you know, even, even, even what seems to be a last breath, not only could you heal him, you can revive him. I remember praying, and I'm being honest, I remember praying <clears throat> one last prayer at his open casket that God would awake his bones and bring him back to life. Time to time, I daydream about God reviving him now, which would be weird because I'd probably be like a zombie, but I, I pray that. I think about it. And I'm human, right? We all, I, if you've lost anyone significant, it doesn't just leave you. You still have this, like, ember of hope, right? And the whole time, I asked myself, was I not praying hard enough, right? Have you asked yourself that? Did I not pray correctly? I didn't use Jesus in Jesus' name enough, right? Did I not get enough people to pray with me, right? Did I not, like, blast it to the world? Did it not reach enough people and enough hearts? And God would hear more people praying. He would care more. <clears throat> was, there, was there just enough of me I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty logical guy. Was there just enough of me that was realistic enough to think that life is just full of death? Maybe I'm just being selfish, you know? Like, maybe my prayer is selfish. Maybe I don't, maybe, I'm, maybe I need to recheck my heart. Maybe God wants my dad a little earlier than I would like, right? And then I, and then I read stories like this, and I ask, did I show as much desire as this man for his son? And then that gets you in a dark place, because what it does is it starts to make you feel like you don't, did I not care enough? Does God only listen to me when I'm like at my best, meaning I'm at my most faith, desperate moment, right? Like, and then you read the story and it doesn't really seem like that, right? It seems like, oh, as small as a mustard seed, right? This small little in inkling of faith. And I'm like, I think I had far more than a mustard seed, if I'm being honest. There was very little doubt in me that God couldn't do something. And so what this does, this leads to two wrong sets of thinking. And I think that you can resonate or someone you know can resonate with this. First one is if I just would have prayed harder and better than God would have done something. If I just would have had more faith, God would answer my prayers. And I'm using a very extreme answer because this is one that I'm still in counseling today for. But you have even moments like where you really wanted this job, right? And you prayed really hard and you didn't get it. And it was really frustrating. You felt like you deserved it. Or you felt like all the signs leading up to it were going to be good, right? Or you knew like, I will be able to honor God more in this job. Or, or you, you know, you had a loss or you had something, right? And you prayed and it didn't work, and you just think, if only I had prayed better or had more faith, that's probably the problem. Or you run to the other side, where you say, well, clearly, God either hates me or isn't real, because I did exactly what he said. 
I followed his word. I had a heart of faith. And what kind of God wouldn't listen to his crying children? There's a scripture that says, if I ask for bread, God would not give me a rock. If I ask for fish, he would not give me a snake. It feels very much like he gave me a snake or nothing at all. Anybody? Anybody resonate with any of those two? Good, you're human. Welcome to the club. And, and, then, and then you're left in this, like, in, and so you, you navigate through these two. And I have a lot of people I know that have walked away from the faith because of number two. They have seen God as a bully or as distant or as cold, or they just don't want to rationalize that, that bad things could happen and God could allow that or whatever, right? You, you, they have their reasons. But uh, you have that. And then you read David in the Bible, who is just like, we, we hear he's, he's a man after God's own heart. And he's not perfect, but he has a lot of instances and track record of, really leaning into faith, into what God was doing and calling him into his life. And then you read these psalms, right? Actually, you read several, if not dozens of psalms where it's like, God, where are you? I'm surrounded by my enemies. Why are you not here? Why are you not present? And then it's like, after that, it's like, but I will rejoice in your name and praise you and have faith. And then at the end, it's like, everything's okay, right? Like, all, like just countless psalms like that, right? He loses his son, with Bathsheba, who he shouldn't have even had sex with and married in the first place or killed his husband, right? A lot of bad things happen then. Loses his son, and he's fasting and mourning, and then he loses his son, and he writes a psalm, and he's just like, like, he, he's so angry, but he feels like it on himself. And he's like, well, I wasn't, I shouldn't have sinned, and I deserve this, and right? And so we read these in the psalms, this godly man, and we have this framework of the way that God and faith deal with each other. And then we read this passage. I read this passage, and I'm like, it's not that simple. That's what my head tells me. It, it, it feels just arrogant to just be like, it's that simple. Now, I'm going to leave this tension right here. Just set it right here, and we're going to keep going. I promise I'll come back to it. But if you felt that tension, it's real. Now, I, I want to make it slightly worse before I make it better. And it's slightly worse because if you read in verse 17, how does Jesus respond to people who lack faith? He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him here to me. This, in my opinion, makes the whole situation even worse, right? Because if, if, if you're reading it, it feels like, oh, okay, so not only did I not have enough faith, but now Jesus is angry at me for not having enough faith, right? I mean, I don't know if you get there, maybe you don't, but like... Jesus is so hard on his disciples right now. I don't understand, like, he could have been like, oh, man, like, it's okay, you're just, you're human, right? Or, or he starts to get frustrated because this has been a track record of them not believing in him, and how often does he say, you have little faith, right? Peter walks in the water. You have little faith. You lack faith. Or the, 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 the storm's calm, and he's like, chill out, right? He's taking a nap on the boat, and they think they're going to die. And, and you just have this track record of the disciples just having very little faith. And Jesus is actually, one commentator said, this is one of very few outbursts that Jesus has in the entire gospel accounts. And the story is not aimed at the man, it's not aimed at the boy, it's aimed at his disciples. And what you're going to realize is this story is far less about healing and far more about disciples and their, their unbelief, if you will. We have, we've seen a lot of healings, we've seen a lot of miracles, and this is the second to last one we'll see in the rest of the entire book of Matthew. And we've got a long way to go. We've got uh, 11 more chapters. We're like halfway. It's going to be this one, and then there's going to be a man in Jericho who's healed. And Matthew's basically, he's like, I'm done with healings. Because he's trying to show us the trajectory of where Jesus is going. This one is fascinating because it's less about the healing, and it's more about the disciples. And that's why Matthew's account is so unique. 
in the way that he describes it. Because then he gives us this little nugget, verse 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus, they brought him over. Jesus rebukes the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed from that moment. That's like what we would say is like the center of the story. But then he's like, no, 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 no. The boy's fine. Let's keep moving. He says in 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? He told them, It was because of your little faith. Little faith is almost like one word. It's little faith. It's not like little faith. It's little faith. And he, he says, I tell you the truth, that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this is the only of the three accounts, this little piece we get in Matthew. We don't get it in Mark or Luke. Um, and I think in Mark, there's like a small, like, you just didn't have faith. And then he just kind of simplifies. But Matthew is teaching us something here. And here, here's the three things that we get from this. And I'm going to unpack these the rest of the, the day. The first thing is that they couldn't do it, Jesus says, because of their lack of faith. Their little faith, lack of faith, absence of faith, whatever. Second one is, even as small as a mustard seed, even a small amount of that can, make, can do miraculous things. Right? He gives them the idea of the mountains. And he's, what's cool is he's probably pointing to the mountain that, that was on the transfiguration. They were the three disciples because they just came down the mountain. He's like, even this mountain that we were at. The third one is that prayer and fasting are the key for faith in verse 21. Now, if you're paying attention in your Bibles, you're like, Trey, I don't have a verse 21 in my Bible. Depending on which, you might have an older translation and you might have it. Good for you. Proud of you. Most translations don't have it. It's probably a footnote in your Bible. Uh, and that is because in the uh, earliest manuscripts, uh, it was the, the phrase, and these only come out through prayer, was there. But then in other manuscripts had not been, and so they want to uphold the integrity of the Bible. And so they leave it on the footnote. Now, what's unique is Mark includes this. Luke includes basically that. And so that's how we know that this was said. But for the sake of, there's a lot of steps that go through the canonization of the Bible. And this one, specifically, if you're wondering, that's why it's the way that it is. What's more interesting is that it only says prayer in most translations. In, in newer manuscripts, it says prayer and fasting. Now, if you think about it logically, fasting wouldn't make any sense because, like, if, if Adam had a demon right now and we needed to cast it out of him, like, I wouldn't be like, hey, give me three to four days. I just need to go fast really quick, and then I'll come back, and then I'll cast out the demon, right? We don't see that in the Bible at all. Like, they just cast out demons immediately. So uh, what had happened was fasting was becoming such a powerful thing around the time a lot of these, the later manuscripts were starting to become uh, codified, and they were like, oh, prayer and fasting, like they're synonymous, like they're together. And so they added fasting. And so that's why most translations won't put that in there, but it's there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give you, I know this is very like scholar heady kind of, right? But I think you should know these things because if you believe in the Bible, you should know it. Um, I'm going to give you the, the basis for why both of those matter. But basically we have that three, three thing formula. They lacked faith. Uh, they need more faith, even just a little bit of faith. We'll get the job done. And the faith is achieved through prayer and or fasting. Right? Is basically what the point of this story is. Okay? And once again, if we go back to my own trauma, right, of like just prayer and not having things answered and questioning it, this still doesn't feel very encouraging, right? Because I'm left with like, okay, I didn't have enough faith. I needed more faith. I should have prayed and fasted more. Like, is that, is that the conclusion that I get to? Right? And the answer is not that simple. Um, I, I think about um, 
C.S. Lewis, who had a very similar, like, I guess, situation. He married a woman, uh, if you know C.S. Lewis, big author. If you don't, read like one of his million books. They're amazing. Um, but he, uh, he married this woman who, I think, I believe, had bone cancer. And she died like two years later. Like, he married her, and then you know, she's had cancer the whole time. She dies. He basically wrote uh, his, one of his m most popular works. is called A Grief Observed. And it's just an entire book about him just, like, grieving her for the rest of his life. And honestly, it's pretty depressing. There's really not a lot of, like, he's going to make me feel better when I read this book. You're going to be like, oh, wow, no, like, he struggled too. And C.S. Lewis is, uh, is just a very prominent man in the faith of just a logical thinker, reason-based. He's kind of like a Tim Keller in some ways. And he wrote that book, and then he wrote another book called The Problem of Pain. So if anyone knows pain, it's C.S. Lewis. And... I resonated with a lot of his quotes. What's funny is he wrote this book during an era of, uh, of masculinity where, you know, you, you couldn't have emotions, you couldn't share them, that would be like, considered like feminine and you wouldn't be a man. And so he wrote it under the name N.W. Clerk. It was his pseudonym and he published this book. And then all of his friends started buying it for him because they thought, this will help you. This was a really good book. <laughs> And then eventually, I think he was like, okay, this is, I wrote it. <laughs> I'm, I'd love to see, read this, like, the transcript on that, that conversation. But, but he, he wrestles with this idea of, of God and answering prayers and suffering. And, and, and do we just pray open-handedly? Do we pray slightly close-handed? Are we allowed to bring our close-handed prayers to God? And, and, and he kind of gets to this point, and I think, I, I, wouldn't, I don't, wouldn't say this is exactly where I am, but where I'm, I'm just, here's what I see in front of me. I'm alive. I believe God is real. I believe that God has moved mountains for me in my life, mountains that were different than my dad heal, being healed, which is a mountain. And do I throw a pity at God because he moved all these mountains but didn't move the one that I wanted him to move, right? Um, do I spend my life, the rest of my life, angry at a God who I might have no idea what he was doing. Like, I have no clue why, and I maybe never will know until this side of heaven. Um, or do I, I use the pain as a opportunity to cling further towards him and to just have a more hatred for the world as we know it, meaning the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And, and to me, it's not like, in, in, in this book, it's not like he just, like, at the end, he's like, and I found... This, the key to all of this, right? I no longer grieve. No, like, I mean, this was what he wrestled with his entire life, and his faith, his faith essentially was just constantly up and down with this, and he even talks about that. Like, I feel like faith is hollow and empty, dealing with the grief and trying to process this all. But what I, what I find comforting about this, and what I, what I want to move in this, this story, is, is the idea of faith, and the idea of, of, we have such wrong thinking about God and his interactions and the way that faith works and prayer works. And, the key of this is given in, in, in the antidote, if you will, of, of lack of faith. But the problem is, it's not the, the antidote of giving more faith that we struggle with. It's the, uh, the fruit of it. Meaning, if I want this mountain to move, I'm going to give myself more faith. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to fast more. I'm going to, whatever, be a better person, right? Whatever game you play. And then the mountain will move. But what if the whole time, the whole point of all of that, was not to move the mountain. It was just to trust that God is moving the right mountains, right? What if, and, and I know that you're saying, well, there's some things that I objectively just, there's no reason why God wouldn't if he was good fix this or do this, right? You can say that, right? But, but what if in the process of faith, 
that the thing that we wanted at the beginning is actually the thing that we don't even need at the end. What if it is? Sure. But what if it isn't? And this is, I think, what this story is getting at. Because just clue on the word faith here. The story is about faith. It's a case study about how faithlessness leads to failure. It leads to lack of power. It leads to lack of authority in terms of disciples and the spirit and what God is doing in the world, making it right. And these disciples lacked faith. Now, the problem with faith is that we attach it to what I call the Billy Graham era, which was a great era for a lot of people who went to stadiums and, and raised their hand to receive Christ and said the sinner's prayer. If you don't know what sinner's prayer is, it's like a short prayer, and then you pray that, and then you're saved. Like you admitted guilt and sin, and right? But then we just, we've just kind of like, we've just taken the word faith, and we've just put it in that like little prayer. And we're like, that's faith, right? Like I say these things, and... And it's missing so much of what the Greek word pistis, which is what faith is translated to, means. I've communicated this before to you. I've used the word loyalty. But I, I liked this uh, definition, one commentator gave, or, or I guess phrase, is trusting reliance or assured knowledge is a better way to describe faith. He's saying you have little faith. You of, uh, of, of lack of trusting reliance... You of a lack of assured knowledge. Now, knowledge is not the intellectual understanding. When we talk about knowledge, we think of like wise old sage who read lots of books. Knowledge in the Hebrew was typically the word yada, which yada was used when you would know someone after you got married. Sex, you can laugh. It's okay. And, and it, was, it was like, that's why in the Bible it would say like, you know, Isaac married so-and-so and knew her. It was this, the yada, it was like this emotional, relational intimacy of knowledge. It was knowing someone deeply. And in the same way, pistis is rooted in this idea of yada, of knowledge, that we know someone deeply. So if you say like, oh yeah, I, I know, like, um, if, I, if you say I know my spouse, you're not just saying like, I know they're a person. You know things about them. You know the way they're emotional. You know their triggers. You know their joys. You know how they treat you. Like, you know all these deep level things. It's not just like intellectual I've used the, the analogy of a, of a, of a, of a um, in the ocean, how you can study textbooks about the ocean and the way that waves work and the, the density of water and all that, but it's just up here in your head until you actually go swim in the ocean, right? Or you sail in the ocean, or you get smashed in the face by a wave, and you're like, that's gravity, that's crazy, right? And, and, and then the marrying of those is true knowledge. It's yada, it's experiencing, it's to know deeply and the, the, the Jewish culture would, would, would totally be thinking like that, right? We don't always think like that. And so what he's doing here, and what our buddy R.T. France, who's been our commentator throughout the book of Matthew, says is, faith is for Jesus not a, ma a matter of intellectual assent, but of practical reliance on a living God. Practical reliance on a living God. Faith is then a continual admission of powerlessness and dependency on God. Continual admission Right? And how do you get there? You get there when you have this, this relationship, this knowledge. And, uh, you know, I love, uh, uh, he says later, he says, faith is not, in this instance, faith is not a measurable commodity. What that means is, Trey, you didn't pray enough. Not true. That's not what faith is. Faith is not an amount of prayers. Faith is not an amount of things you do correctly. It is not a measurable commodity, but a relationship. And what achieves results through prayer is not a superior quantity of faith, but the unlimited power of God on which faith and any faith can draw. And so neither of, of these, you know, when we talk about um, faith and we talk about knowledge and we talk about reliance, neither of these 
are, is, is what Jesus is getting at. It's not, he's saying you guys don't have these things. And so then we get to the point where we get to prayer and fasting where we think about, okay, why then is that brought into the story? Because most of us would, would probably be raised saying we, we objectively know faith can't be like worked on, meaning I can't work my way to God, right? That's, that's, why, that's what we mean when, like, when we're evangelical Christian church. We believe basically in faith um, that is fully grace alone, right? There's no, like, I can't give away a certain amount of money. I can't be nice enough to a certain amount of people. Nothing I can do will get to the point where my faith has been established by me. It's all God's work. But then it says, like, oh, these things are done through prayer and fasting, right, or prayer. And it's confusing because you're like, okay, well, that seems like a work to me, Trey, right? Which is why I said when you're spiraling and you, ha- you get frustrated, you say, well, God, I just, I didn't pray enough. I'm not good enough. I didn't do enough. You get frustrated. But then you're like, but it says to pray. It says to pray more. They didn't pray. They didn't fast. Or they didn't prepare to cast out this demon. They didn't have uh, a practical reliance on God that was cultivated through the act of prayer and fasting, right? But, but like I said, at the end of the day, we're like, but that's still actions. And I, I loved, I listened to uh, Tyler Statton. He's at Bridgetown Church teach on this during COVID. And uh, he just put it really well. And, and it got me to realizing that prayer and fasting are actions, meaning like there's something that we kind of like put our body and life under. But I would actually say they're less action and they're more anti-action. What is prayer and what is fasting? Both of them are removing action from our life. Prayer is the act of, of renouncing action, doing, working, relationship, whatever, right? Like it is, it is isolating all things to be in one relationship with God, which is what faith is, relationship, practical reliance, right? Fasting is the very same thing. It is renouncing something tangible that's probably insidious in nature that, that's consuming you. It could be a good thing that you've made an absolute thing, right? And it's cutting those things down so that you clear yourself, so that you clear yourself for relationship with God. Both of these things, I actually would argue, are like an anti-action, meaning that they're not done for the sake of the, the action themselves. They're done so that you can clear yourself out to, to engage in a deeper level of faith. I think about um, the idea of fasting, and I don't know if you've ever fasted, and obviously there's different types of fast in the Bible. Typically it was food fasting. Um, But both are just an act of renunciation. It's saying I'm renouncing this thing, right, so I can cultivate this opportunity to to begin in faith. And, And what is interesting is these were rhythms for Jesus' disciples the whole time. Like Jesus was a rule following Jew. They would fast sometimes. Now, the Pharisees got mad because they weren't fasting three days a week. But Jesus is like, God never said to do that. You made that up, right? That's a whole other argument they have. But they follow the rules, right? He's a, he'd go to the synagogue, right? He did all these things. The disciples would do all these things. They, had pray, they would pray and they would fast. And they did all these things. And then he goes up on a mountain and the nine disciples are left to their own devices. And uh, I'm going to guess that they weren't doing anything, right? They were just kind of living their life. And they're sitting here and all of a sudden this father comes with his son. And they're like, hey, like you guys are... Jesus' disciples, can you just cast this demon? I'm like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And they had had no cultivation of faith. There was no connection. There was no relationship. And they just were trying to just conjure this up like it was some sort of like formula, like a witch in a magic spell, right? And it wasn't working. And Jesus is like, how can I be gone for just a few days and you're already just like on your own devices? You're in your own world. You're, you're, you're choosing the distractions and the things of the world. And the point of prayer and fasting is not a legalistic, I do these things. I, I think Tyler Stanton said it best. The, the, the true beauty of this, of, of these things, is experiencing true joy 
unaided by consumption. True joy, unaided by consumption. And that's what prayer is, right? Whether you're, un- you're, you're avoiding busyness, uh, numbing yourself, right, with TV, with people, uh, right, working to gather more money, build yourself up the ladder. Fasting is the same thing, right? You're removing something in your life, right, so that you can be like little children who can, you can, you can put them in a room with four walls and a door and nothing, and they will have a great time for a certain amount of time, right? They're just going to make up a game. They're going to run in circles. They're going to like start like punching the floor and making noise and drums. And you put a grown, a grown adult in there, and they're like, this is boring. There's nothing to do here, right? It's because children, are, they're having j- true joy unaided by consumption, right? They don't need anything. They can just enjoy what is in front of them, and they're not distracted by everything else. And so I know you're probably like, where is this fitting in here? And I, I think what Jesus is doing, what he's teaching his disciples, and what we have to absorb in all of this is that the things that we pray for, the faith that we want to see is oftentimes misdirected. And I say that, honestly, like in my life, when I think about the hard question of why did God not answer my prayers or was God listening or how do I reconcile this in light of what I read in the scriptures, this, the, these ideas of prayer and fasting comfort me because what it makes me realize is it's, it's, it's just a reminder. It's really not about me. I am not God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God will move every mountain that you want to move, right? And that I can't just treat, and, and, and if I did, if I just said, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that, Lord, heal this person, Lord, do that, and he's like, yes, yes, yes. Who, like, what relationship is that, right? If, if a child went to a parent and said, I want this, and I want that, and you can go away now, <laughs> how do you think the parent would feel? Be like, can we just hang out a little? I don't know. Maybe we can, the ice cream you want, we can go to ice cream and hang out, right? Or maybe you get there and you realize, I really don't need ice cream. I need something else, right? And I, I know that's a silly illustration, but they, we have a case study of this in the book of Acts. There's this magician who, his name's Simon, not Simon Peter, it's different Simon, who's a magician, and he's seeing the disciples basically, like, just following the Spirit and healing people and praying deeply every night in, in the community and, and, and bringing the kingdom to earth, right? And... This Simon's like, I want some of that. Like, give me some of that juice. I don't know what it is, right? What energy drink are you drinking? I want it. And he tries to pay them, right? He's like, you want money? I got it, right? And Peter's like, we don't want your money, right? He's like, your whole heart behind all of this is completely wrong. Get out of here. And I just think like, you know, sometimes we, Simon, where we read this and we're like, going to have faith, going to get what I want, going to move these mountains. And the whole time you're like, why are you even wanting that mountain to move in the first place? And for me, I, like I said, I got to the point where God has moved so many mountains in my life. And, and the mountain that I wanted to move that he didn't move, I can spend my whole life being bitter. I can spend my whole life thinking God doesn't care, even though I have an entire track record of my life where God does care and is present and is there. And what does the devil want me to do? He just wants me to be angry and he just wants me to sit and he just wants me to be lazy and he just wants me to whine. And he wants me to do exactly what the disciples did, which was just to sit there and think that we can just treat God like a little genie and just say, heal this demon. And and then Jesus shows up and he's like, you perverse generation, which we use the word perverted differently now, but it's basically just like, you have completely wrong thinking. Your thinking is completely wrong. You don't just say words. You don't just think that you can conjure up something. It's through, through acts, and I'm using prayer and fasting because it's the example, it's through renouncing the world of its stuff that you become truly content with where you are. And through faith, I think you see things happen. 
But I think you're incredibly content with whatever God will do. And uh, to close, I want to invite Nick up. Um, I, th I think about this in the illustration of the man himself in this prayer. So the man in this story, um, not in the prayer, in the story, is saying, hey, help heal my son. And, and in one of the accounts, he says, I love this phrase, he says, uh, Jesus is like, well, you, you know, do you believe I can heal your son? He says this, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Which is like, which one is it? You believe, you don't believe. Anybody ever have that in their heart? Like, Lord, I kind of believe, but I don't. There's a part of me that doesn't believe that you'll do this, that you will, that, you, that you're listening, that you're right. And I actually think that prayer is one of the most powerful prayers we can pray because the belief, the faith is, Lord, I, I am I'm relying on you practically. Help me in the areas that I just can't, that I'm just struggling, that I'm just wrestling, that I just I can't get over at night. And, and th this prayer is what I think is in light of the mustard seed. I think the mustard seed, he says, will grow into this beautiful tree. Hand you have a photo of it. Small seed, tall tree, beautiful, right? Birds find shade in it, right? And, and in, in light of that small little faith seed, I think is this prayer. It says, Lord, I believe, but I'm human, and I have struggles, and I have doubts, and I don't trust you. And this is David's psalms, like every one of his psalms. I know you're God and in control. Why aren't you here? And through this small little faith, we can achieve, we can see power occur. And I said, it's power that we often don't think it'll happen in the way that it will. It's power that might not make us happy, but it gives us joy unaided by consumption. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but this is, uh, this is in our bathroom. If you ever come over to our house and really want to use our bathroom, uh, this is in our bathroom. And uh, this is the mustard seed, if you can tell. And... Uh, it's funny because so many people are like, what is that thing? And Sarah's like, it's a mustard seed. And Jesus says, this is how much faith you have to have. Now, what I think is so funny is, one, this is not very big. And two, there's, there's, there's opportunities for us to, to just lean into this small amount of faith every day. It, this is going to be really funny, but every single chair that you're sitting in has a mustard seed on it. You probably sat on it. You can look to your left or right. There's just a little mustard seed. You're like, wow, this is crazy. It's like youth camp where they hide stuff under the chairs. And uh, if you want one, I, I have more. I can, you, can, you can take it home and put it in a nice frame like this. If you didn't get one, I don't know, I guess you'll have to steal one then. Steal someone else's faith. But, uh, but, but how often are these, these little moments in our lives where, where we, just, we just need to press in just, just renouncing the things that are pulling from our relationship so that we can give just this small little seed to the Lord. That we can turn away from like whatever we need to fast from or the prayers that we need to just give over to the Lord. We just, we just give those things over. We send ourselves and we say, Lord, here's all I got. Will you do with it whatever you want? So as we uh, transition into a time of communion and reflection, uh, I'd encourage you if you want to hold the seed and just look at it for a little while, go for it. Um, but yeah, if you believe in Jesus, the sacrifice that he made on the cross, that his body and blood spilled for us, is a reminder that he is, he is truly listening, that he is present, that he is in our lives. And the mustard seed may be a reminder that we literally just need to give him just the smallest amount. Um, and so we don't have any questions. I you, sometimes I have reflection questions. I don't have any questions. I just want you to sit and process. If you want to take the Lord's Supper, you can. There's people in the back who would love to pray for you. Uh, and just, just take some time 
if you're like me, this passage brings up a lot of frustrations and, 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 and difficulty and questions. And I, I'm going to tell you, I don't have it all figured out. I think that's okay. But in these moments, can we just look at the mustard seed? Can we just pray the smallest prayer? Some of you would have never, like, have never really prayed a prayer where you're like, I, I, I desperately want God to just be present to reveal himself. Some of you have prayed for healing or for whatever happened, right? In this moment, I encourage you to pray that prayer, whatever it is, whatever you need. I encourage you to pray this very prayer that this man prayed. I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. This became a prayer that is still known today in one of the most popular monastic traditions as the Jesus prayer. And you pray it as your breath breathes. I believe, help me in my unbelief. I believe, help me in my unbelief. I encourage you, if you'd like, you can pray that silently as well. Um, it is a beautiful prayer that we all need to be praying as we continue to just reconcile our faithlessness in God's faith. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.